Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Please, a little bit. That's better. Thank you. Adonai said to Moshe, Now you will see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. With a mighty hand, he will send them off, and with force, he will drive them from the land. God spoke to Moshe and said to him, I am Adonai. I appeared to Avraham, Isaac, and Yaakov as El Shaddai, although I did not make myself known to them by my name, Yahweh, Adonai. Also with them, I established my covenant to give them the land of Canaan, the land where they wandered about and lived as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians are keeping in slavery, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am Adonai. I will free you from the forced labor of the Egyptians, rescue you from their oppression, and redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Adonai, your God, who freed you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. I will give it to you as your inheritance. I am Adonai. Moshe said to the people of Israel, or said this to the people of Israel, but they wouldn't listen to him because they were so discouraged and their slavery was so cruel. Adonai said to Moshe, go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people leave Israel, leave his land. Moshe said to Adonai, look, the people of Israel haven't listened to me, so how will Pharaoh listen to me, poor speaker that I am? But Adonai said to Moshe and Aaron, and gave them orders concerning both the people of Israel and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. These were the heads of their family. It's good to be back, although I was back in a matter of speaking. Last Shabbat, <clears throat> I um, first of all wanted to begin with a word of thanks <clears throat> for the uh, outpouring of chesed that was given to me um, in the few days before I went to Dallas to the conference. Um, and this is something at the Yeshuatzion that <clears throat> we're very emphatic that all of us are fellow strugglers. The fact that uh, one or more of us is in spiritual leadership doesn't mean that we are in an absolute place of heavenly uh, disposition yet. That's coming. It's over here somewhere. 
But at this point, um, we do struggle. And as you all know, most of you know, I'm a son of a Holocaust survivor. And uh, this is a particularly tender area for me because it involves not only the, the whole subject of the Shoah, the Holocaust itself, but my relationship to my father who had passed, um, for which I needed a whole bunch of healing, deliverance, cleansing, etc. And God is faithful. So the conference was <clears throat> basically just a um, several days where people, <clears throat> excuse me, where people gather together. This was um, organized by Ted Pierce, whom many of us know and love. Um, and it was a uh, collection of uh, Jewish uh, second generation of survivors. Uh, some were Messianic Jews, some were not. <clears throat> and as well, there was a group of German believers from the town of Tübingen who are connected with a ministry uh, which... Um, the uh, the name is the abbreviation is TOS. Um, some of you were here when Jobs Bittner, uh, who is the head of it, came here a number of years ago and he spoke to us. Um, an awesome group of folks, and a number of them um, are grandchildren of Nazi perpetrators. So the focus of the time that we spent together was to be able to share our experiences. Um, and one, one, in, uh, one day in particular, uh, Monday, a few days ago, we sat from uh, 10 o'clock to 6 o'clock sharing our experiences, and uh, it was pretty intense. Um, because uh, we took turns sharing what it was like to grow up in the family of someone who was a Holocaust survivor. <clears throat> um, and around the table typically was someone who then shared what it was like to grow up as a son of a son or daughter of a perpetrator. Um, <clears throat> major issue for us who have a, ho a Holocaust connection was the fact that our parents typically, like uh, people who have uh, gone through post-traumatic stress disorder in general, uh, were extremely reluctant to speak about their experiences. Some of you know that my father's story, which had been written in a book called Out of the Fury, uh, contain facts that I had never seen until I was in my mid-30s. And my father's secretary uh, interviewed him. He experienced a great deal of nightmares as she was doing that. And she gave me the manuscript to read. And it was the first time I had seen and come to terms with most of 
what my father had gone through during the war. Um, it was not unusual uh, for children of survivors, and that was part of what came out. Um, and the reality of how the survivors struggled and came to terms and made a life for themselves, um, and then how they raised their children, um, sometimes, um, well, in, in all cases, the trauma that they had experienced was transmitted to their kids. And um, so we shared that. As I said, most of us were Messianic Jews. A couple were not. And we had the opportunity to talk to them about what it means to be a descendant of a survivor and as well uh, to be someone who is who had that experience coupled with being uh, rejected by the Jewish community. And for us, that was very, very palpable uh, as a child because uh, the believing community in Israel experienced a great deal of suffering. And um, so a symbol of that was the fact that my folks died. They could not be buried in the Jewish cemetery. That was something that I mentioned. Um, but the folks from, from this ministry in Tubingen, the pastor in particular, shared that when he came to the ministry in the 1980s, there were memorials to leading Nazi figures still standing uh, in the city of Tubingen. Tubingen, <coughs> you may or may not know, was a center um, of the leading theologians who were advisors to uh, major Nazi figures. Uh, for example, a fellow named Kittel, who produced a remarkable work of Old Testament scholarship, was also a, an advisor um, to one of the Nazi figures. And so this ministry has been very deeply involved in uncovering that, uh, in seeking to repent for the sin of silence because most of the um, children, actually all of the children who grew up in the homes of perpetrators were given a whitewash picture of, of what their grandparents did. One gal in particular was told that her grandpa was uh, part of the SS, uh, but once he found out what it was, then he quickly stepped away from it. Well, she started to do some digging in archives and found out that her, father, her grandfather uh, served with the SS in the Ukraine, um, probably with uh, an organization, a group called Einsatzgruppen, Einsatz, Einsatz which was involved in the uh, massacre of about 1.3 million Jewish people by uh, shooting them. And uh, she found out her, that her grandpa was actually there at the time. Then later on, he was involved in training SS uh, in one of the facilities that the S had, had set. So this is something that she shared with us. And um, as you can imagine, it was very intense. Um, we, you couldn't help but love these folks. 
these uh, German brothers and sisters because of the pain that they themselves have endured, the fact that they understand what Jewish people went through, the fact that they were able to relate to us, and the fact, most of all, that they understood that regardless of what Germany did or didn't do, that God's plan for the nation of Israel stands. And they're very, very, very solidly committed to that. Uh, in fact, the, the pastor has had some significant contact with um, the fellow who leads the uh, Simon Wiesenthal um, organization, which has been dedicated to ferreting out Nazis. Um, so it, it was a blessing in a sense. Um, like a lot of what we do, um, we do what we do because we feel the need to obey what God puts before us. And sometimes we understand it, sometimes we like it, sometimes we don't. But the bottom line is, when the Lord says, jump, we say, how high? We have no choice. We who have committed ourselves to follow Yeshua have to have that perspective. We're sold, signed, sealed, and delivered to do, to do the Father's will. And so I believe that the fruit of that will come at some point. Uh, Ted Pierce told us that the, um, <clears throat> the interviews will be made available for the Yad Vashem archives. Yad Vashem, you may know, is the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And um, what, what particularly blessed me is, uh, was a um, special opportunity to sit face-to-face, one-on-one with, with Ted Pierce. He schlepped me to the, from the airport. He schlepped me back. And um, one of the things, one of the statements that he made that really grabbed me was simply this. He said, he stated that God dropped this amazing opportunity into his lap. Um, he really was never exposed to virtual reality. By the way, if you're not familiar with virtual reality, um, you can wear a pair of goggles that are virtual reality and you're talking to somebody um, somewhere and then all of a sudden through those goggles you find yourself up in the mountains standing next to a cow chewing uh, some blades of grass. Uh, I really don't know what that looks like when it comes to interviews. But in any event, the interviews were done through virtual reality and they will be made available on this virtual reality app at some point in the next couple of months. So please don't ask me if, if those are available at this point. They're not. Um, Ted's son um, is an amazing young fellow who is a committed believer and a filmmaker in San Francisco. And he is on the leading edge, on the cutting edge of virtual reality. And so he has then instructed his papa how to do vir virtual reality stuff. 
So this is all new to, to Ted. And by golly, it certainly was absolutely new to me. But again, part of what really spoke to me was the fact that, you know, we're busy about life. Get up in the morning, go to work, go to school, go about our chores, do whatever. Totally oblivious to the fact that God Almighty is in the picture, that God Almighty is in the picture at work, that he's doing stuff, and furthermore, that he has a plan. And I would say much of the time, perhaps most of the time, all the time, we're totally oblivious to God's plan, God's strategy, until at some point we wake up and we see the plan and we understand and, and our eyes are open. We say, wow, God, you've been at work all this time. Um, I've been asleep. You certainly have not. And what impressed me as I've been studying, first of all, as we went through um, Daniel and as we've gone through Exodus, what has really impressed me was the fact that we know all these stories. We, if you have grown up in a believing environment or uh, in a synagogue or in a church, you've heard the stories. You can tell these stories. However, we have these stories from a perspective of facts on the ground, the human interaction. And God is mostly out of the picture other than to say, okay, people are having a hard time. God steps in. He pulls them out. Bingo. End of story. Totally oblivious to the fact that God had been at work in that particular situation, that God had a plan, that God was working the plan. And that people who were part of that plan didn't really understand until way, 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 way into the plan. Even someone like Moses, whom we consider to be one of the greatest men of God in Scripture. And Rabbi David, uh, a couple weeks ago, he took us through the interaction between God and Moses. And I always find that fascinating. You know, God calls him, uh, gives him a uh, sound and light show, gets his attention, and uh, has this long discussion with um, five responses back and forth where God says, I want you to go, and Moses says, no, I don't want to go. God says, I want you to go. No, I don't want to go. And finally, the Hebrews states in chapter 5, God's nostrils flared. That's literally what it means when it speaks about God got really angry. And, and at that point, Moses got it and said, okay, I've been stupid. Maybe I need to do something different and respond to what God has in mind. But the truth is, as we read these beginning chapters of Exodus, we see that Moses was in no way, shape, or form interested in carrying out the commission that God had for him. Do you, know, do you know what I'm saying? Uh, do you ever feel like that? Where you sense that, that God is leading you to do something and you kind of sense it and very timidly you have a back and forth, somewhat schizoid to do or not to do. And at some point you get the fact, okay, this really is of God and, and he has made it very clear to me and I really don't want to be stupid, stupid-er, 
And so we respond, but Moses initially responds, and he comes to, to the people. And in chapter 5, we see that the people are ecstatic. Why, why wouldn't they be after 400 years of being oppressed? And by the way, the slave driver, the Hebrew word for slave driver, literally means those who are oppressing them. In other words, their job specifically was not to oversee them, but their job was to oppress them. Because if you go back to uh, chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus, you'll see that Pharaoh had a strategy, and his strategy was to beat down and pacify the people of Israel so that they wouldn't be able to rise up. They wouldn't have any spunk left in them. So the slave drivers oppressed them, and so the, when Moses first Moses and Aaron first come, the people are delighted. Yeah, this is good stuff, and God is hearing us, and um, he has come to visit us. And the Hebrew word there, pakad, is translated in, in King Jimmy as visit. Well, it's not like, uh, you know, uh, you and I coming to visit somebody. It, what it literally means is God is getting deeply involved in a, in a situation, and he is rolling up his sleeves and getting to work. And so the people are saying, wow, God is getting involved, and they bow down and worship. That was step one, and, and Moses, of course, is affirmed. This is good stuff. Thank you, God. I'll continue. And then he comes to Pharaoh. And Moses comes to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh because Mo, uh, Aaron is his mouthpiece. And very boldly, and this is something that Rabbi David and I were talking, he brought out that insight. I have to give credit here. Chapter 5, verse 1, they say to him, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Let my people go. It's a com command form. In other words, it's not... Pharaoh, if, if you think this is a good idea, then please do so. No, this is imperative. Let my people go, and they will hold a festival for me in the desert. And Pharaoh's response is not, yeah, I'll consider it. Pharaoh's response is, who is this God of yours? We have a bunch of gods, and by the way, I'm a god too, so why do I need to listen to your god? His basic attitude is, forget it. And so Moses' second response, Moses and Aaron's second response is to back off way, way, way back. The, the second statement they make to, to Pharaoh is not, let the people go. But the response is much more nuanced, much more subtle. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey, please, into the desert to offer sacrifices to our God, or he may strike us with the plagues or with the sword. In other words, Pharaoh, would you please consider that, or else we're toast. Pharaoh's response is more severe. Get back to work. And his response to Moses is, shoo fly, get out of here. You're being troublemakers. 
And furthermore, he speaks to his slave drivers and says, okay, these Israelites are restless. Let's pacify them some more and take away the, the hay and stubble and still demand that they do work as much as before. You know, when I was thinking about it, what came to mind is that a lot of us work for pharaohs. You know what I'm saying? That work is busy and intense, and then the corporate higher-ups decide that um, the workers really are kind of uh, slouching, and so they fire a bunch of people, and they expect the rest of the folks to do as much work as before. Pharaoh is alive and well today. And so Moses, at this point, is not the awesome man of God that we see later on in the rest of, of the Torah, especially in Exodus and in Numbers. Moses, at this point, is, is pretty timid, which, at least for me, is pretty encouraging because, you know, you look at Moses, and most of us look at him and say, ah, you know, there's no way I can relate to this guy. This guy talked to God, had these conversations with God all the time. Who am I? I talk to God occasionally. I'm not sure he listens. I'm not sure he talks back to me. But at this stage of the game, Moses, Moses' faith is very timid. It's, it's very underbaked. And, and the reason why it's encouraging for me is simply that God takes us where we are and works with us as we are he doesn't expect us to be giants right off the bat or ever he starts off with us as we are he works with us where we are and speaks to us mostly patiently in order to get us where we need to be Moses, at this point, is very, very upset because he stepped out and things blew up in his face. The people, he runs into the people and they say, May the Lord look down on you and judge you. You have made a stench to Pharaoh and to his officials. You put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returns to the Lord. This is, I'm back in... in Chapter 5, verse 22, Moses returns to the Lord. Oh, Lord, why have you brought trouble about, uh, upon these people? Is this why you've sent me? You had nothing better to do. Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he brought trouble upon the people, and you have not rescued your people, your people at all. In other words, he is saying, this is what you call by rescue? This is your version of rescuing? And so he, Moses is like a lot of us. He sees facts on the ground. Okay, we all get the facts on the ground. Sometimes they're not particularly pretty. Life gets difficult sometimes for all of us. And we make the wrong conclusion. God is the cause of the terrible things that are happening to us. He's punishing us. Do you ever feel that way? 
You know, I've talked to enough people over the years to where folks have tried to rewind the tapes and say, well, let me figure out what's going on here, what's wrong. Um, maybe I, I, I did something to make God angry at me and, and he punished me. Wrong conclusion. Because it misses the point of the basic reality that God is at work through all things. Good, bad, and ugly. Good, bad, and ugly, folks. God is at work. And if we understand that, we realize that in every single situation in our life, God has something positive that he wants to produce. He is able to take the lemons and make lemonades out of them, folks. Without that, you go through life with a very grim perspective. If you understand the fact that God uses all circumstances to produce good things in our life. Not just because of Romans 8.28, but because of what Scripture tells us throughout. If you understand that, then you look for God to produce good things through what takes place in you and in other people. I know, I know that's a challenge because our, our thoughts often are, okay, God, I'm okay. You know, the problem is with so-and-so over here. Yeah, they need to be fixed. I'm okay. They're dysfunctional. So we see that this is, this is a real stretch for Moses. Again, remember that when we come to the end of the book, when we come to Deuteronomy, you see Moses as an amazing giant. But we have to be sure and rewind the tapes and come back to the beginning in these sections. Why? So that we see, A, how God worked with him and then take encouragement with the fact that God works with us the same way. Whether we are Moses with a capital M or Moses with a small m. So this is fits and starts here. Moses comes. To, to Pharaoh, Pharaoh gets, uh, gives him the short end of the stick. The people are upset at him. God says to him, you go back. He, he goes back, talks to the people. And verse, uh, verse 9 of this chapter, Moses reported the fact that God is working, that he has a plan. They did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. The Hebrew word there, the Hebrew phrase for discouragement is very graphic. It literally means shortness of breath or shortness of spirit. In other words, all they could see were, was the difficulties, the, the facts on the ground. And their attitude was at that point, we're done. We listened to you one time, we're not listening to you again. And reality, folks, for all of us, when we sense that God taps on our shoulder and calls on us to do things for him, 
we like to think that everything is nicely laid out, that we have a set of blueprints, and that the moment we step out by faith to do what God tells us, everything will be hunky-dory. Well, it isn't. You know, when we began Yeshua Tzion, we were full of vim, vigor, and other things, and uh, enthusiasm and vision. And within two or three years, uh, we ran into reality. There were difficulties. Hello? And part of reality for us was to say, okay, God, oh, was that you? Was that last night's pizza? What was go what's going on here? And what I'm impressed with, folks, is the fact that God is relentless when he calls us. When he invites us to do things for him, he's relentless. He's not willing to say, he's not willing to say, okay, you had a problem here. Well, all right, you can step down and, and cool off and be on a bench for a while. No. God says, go back. Go back. And Moses is confronted with this challenge of faith. And the people here failed that faith. And there's a basic pattern that we find throughout Scripture. And that is discouragement or even depression which can lead to disbelief or unbelief. In other words, God, I don't trust you. And then it leads to disobedience. God, I don't trust you, therefore I'm going to do my own thing. We have a warning for that in Hebrews chapter 3, where the writer tells us the following, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart, that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as, as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Things get difficult, get discouraged, all of us. We stop trusting that God knows what he is doing, that he is in control. And then it leads to hardening of the heart and disobedience. True for all of us, folks. Here's another verse that is both my favorite, I love it, and I hate it at the same time. I love it because when I'm in the right mind, it, it's encouraging. But when I'm discouraged, I, I want to put it away. Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good so that in the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And my personal struggle with this is, Lord, uh, would you please define for me what you mean by proper time? Um, is this a millennia? Or is this sometime during my lifetime? And uh, yet the word of God is very simple. All of us get discouraged. The issue is, what do we do with that discouragement? Do we learn to overcome by the grace of God and press on towards what he has prepared for us? Or do we allow the discouragement to harden, turn into bitterness and unbelief and disobedience? We have polar opposites in how we handle discouragement, folks. So Moses, again, 
struggles and and his focus folks is not on, on God at this point his focus remains on him and you see that repeated over and over again chapter 6 verse 12 the Lord said to Moses if the Israelites will not listen to me why would why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips this is an argument from the lesser to the greater then in the same, the same chapter here, verse 30, Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? The Hebrew expression there literally, as King James would put it, uncircumcised lips. Now, I know that's kind of bizarre to try and understand what that looks like. Um, but what simply means um, unacceptable unprepared ability to communicate. In other words, Moses sees himself basically as a Midianite hillbilly. You know, he was in the backwoods of Midian for 40 years. He has taken on the customs, the traditions, the language of the Midianites. He's coming back to court, sophistication and so on and so forth. And he is full of himself. He's full of himself, full of his own inadequacy. God, I don't have what it takes. And furthermore, I took baby steps and blew up in my face. And God says, yeah, you're right. You are inadequate. I am not. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge in this passage for Moses and for the rest of us is not to park on our inadequacy, okay? We get it. We're all, to one degree or another, we have inadequacies. None of us can stand up and say, look at me, whoa, am I God's gift to humanity or what? None of us. None of us. All of us, in, in, we have our days when we struggle and say, God, you got to be kidding. You should send him, him, her, her, or her. Why me? God has a Jewish sense of humor, and he responds to that by saying, why not you? Again, reality is Moses, at this stage, is focused on himself. Yet, yet, what is amazing here, despite all that, Moses and Aaron do what God tells them to do. They don't disobey God because they're discouraged. In fact, if, if you were to go over to chapter 7, you'll see three times that it's mentioned that Moses and Aaron did everything exactly as God told them. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. Again, remember in Scripture that when you see things repeated three times, it is designed to get your attention. Sit up and pay attention. Get the picture. So why... Despite Moses' discouragement, despite the fact that he is full of inadequacies, despite the fact that he has had rejection by the people, 
Why is he able to continue? Is he afraid that God will punish him? I don't think so. What we find later on in Numbers is that the Spirit of God was upon Moses. We don't tell us exactly how that came, how the Spirit of God came to Moses, but reality is, you know, that Moses and God are having these conversations. And at some point through these conversations, Moses gets the fact that, okay, um, I don't know how it's going to work out, but God will make something work out. And as, as Moses steps out again and again and again to do what God has called him to do, you have less and less and less and less of these self-conversations. God, I don't know if I can do it. I am... I am uh, stuttering and blah, 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 blah. That's what you find in the beginning is Moses steps out and obeys God. Somehow his arms, his spiritual arms get stronger and he does what God has called him to do. What does that tell us? Simply that despite our sense of insecurity and inadequacy. As God taps us on the shoulder and say, I have an assignment for you. As we step out to do that, and as we learn to put less and less emphasis on who we are and more and more emphasis on who God is, we become strengthened and empowered by the Spirit of God to do what God has called us to do. And we begin to recognize the fact that God is at work and that God has a plan here. Folks, that's always, always, always reality. God is working. God has a plan, a strategic plan. God reveals that strategic plan to Moses. And I like the way he puts it at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 1, verse Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go because of my mighty hand. He will drive them out of the country. Think about almost God having his chutzpah. I mean, if he were human, would say, This is chutzpah. Pharaoh saying, No way, I'm going to let these people go. And God is saying, Oh, yeah? I'm going to see to it that he not only lets them go, he shoots, shoots them out of the country. He chases them out of the country. Polar opposite, 180 degrees. Why? And you see this statement repeated over and over again in these chapters. Ani Adonai. Ani Adonai. Ani Adonai. Ani Adonai. I am the eternally existing God. I've been around. I will continue. I am right now. And what you find here, as, you've, as we've seen in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, is that God is somehow able to roll up his sleeves and get to work, even in the face of pagan kings who are totally opposed to his plan and strategy. God rolls up his sleeves, gets to work, and they change. This is something we find in Proverbs 21.1. 1. 
the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. He turns it as a man turns a water course. In other words, a water channel. So there is a strategy. And we typically say, okay, strategy here is that people are suffering. God, get them out. Bring them into a good place. End of story. No, not end of story. A major part of the, the process here is that Moses, God's tool, has to be toughened, matured in, in his relationship with God. That's always part of the plan, folks. God gives us an assignment, but part of the assignment involves us growing into maturity in our relationship with God. But even bigger is the fact that through everything that takes place, there's the absolute necessity for people to get the fact that, that the God of Israel is the eternally existing God, Ani Adonai. And he says that for the nation of Israel. He says that as well for the people of Egypt. This is part of the plan for Israel. And remember that God has the choice for the nation of Israel. The people are first on his priority list, but that doesn't mean that anybody else is off the screen. So the Lord gives Moses the strategy, and tomorrow night we will sip Four times, not four cups. Four times from state, based on four statements that God makes in verses 6 to 7 of chapter, uh, chapter 6 here. But I have enough chutzpah to say there's actually more than four statements. That if you count them, and you dare to disagree with tradition, you'll find that there's seven statements. Uh, God wants to bring out the people of Israel out of bondage. He wants to show his power. He wants to become their God. Relationship. He wants to be to bring them into the land that he has sworn to give to their ancestors. And this is something, folks, that we have a hard time getting. That God has a plan that is full-orbed. It isn't just, God, get me out of this trouble right now, but, but God, what is the full plan that you have for me? I want that. Not just the, the immediate relief, but the full plan. Again, this involved Israel. It also involved the Egyptians. The Lord said to Moses, he made a couple of statements, that as he acts, the nation of Israel will know that he is the Lord. But he also makes that same statement for the Egyptians. And in chapter 7, verse 5, and the Egyptians will know 
that I am the Lord God when I stretch my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Why? Why did God care? Because he wanted to see the Egyptians impacted as well. And we know that the people of Israel came out of Egypt. There was a mixed multitude. In other words, a bunch of other folks who came with them, Egyptians and others. And we know that the story spread out throughout the other peoples so that when the nation of Israel comes to Jericho, this Canaanite prostitute says, we had heard about what your God did in Egypt. That's part of the plan, part of what God wants to do. Yes, he has special plans for the nation of Israel. He has special plans for the entire world. And part of reality for us, on a given day, we are obsessed, consumed with who am I? What am I doing? Am I going to do well? God, get me out of this place, out of the trouble I'm in. And the Lord has bigger plans. And we simply need to say, Lord, I want you to open my eyes and show me what it is that you have in mind. I want to close with this story from the, the trip that I had. Got on the plane, got wonderful seats, lots of leg room. Hallelujah. And uh, there was space between myself and the person sitting next to me. Thank you, Lord. I, I, I wanted to be left alone. I, I had some grim paperwork I needed to go through. You know, stuff about the history of the Holocaust, my family, and so on. And uh, I've usually made a habit of saying, Lord, I want to be available for whatever it is you have in mind. That's my normal MO. Not this time. This time I wanted to be left alone. Well, God had different plans. <laughs> Along comes this lady, rather substantial one, and uh, sits next to me, and I'm thinking, oh, Lord. Fortunately, she starts to talk to the fellow sitting next to the window. But at some point, something changed, and she and I started to talk. And you know the usual deal of, uh, okay, now I, I do this, and what do you do for a living? And she is... She is a historian. She works for a genealogical company uh, in Wichita. And she asks what I do. I tell her I'm a Messianic Jewish rabbi. She looks at me a little puzzled. She said, I sat next to a rabbi on a trip to New York a year ago. I looked at her a little quizzically. And then something began to dawn. And I realized that she and I shared the same area a year and a half ago on a trip to New York for another conference. <laughs> and it made such a profound impact on me, I had forgotten. <laughs> and so this time... It looked like we had longer opportunity to, to talk, and we really started to talk. 
And she shared about her life and how she grew up, and it's, it uh, found its way to a discussion of religion. You know how I hate the word religion because it, for me it, it smells of legalism. She talked about how that she was raised up in the church and she was old enough, she left. And I said, well, started to talk about a relationship with God. What about a relationship with God? That God wants to know you, God cares, and so on and so forth. And I shared about who we are and, and our life and our story and so on. And... Um, God knows exactly what took place in her heart, in her cranium. But it, for me, it was such a powerful statement of, I'm the boss, I have a plan, and at any given time, I want you to be prepared and say, yes, Lord, what is it that you have in mind? Regardless, regardless of where we feel we are at a given point in time, we say, Lord, I'm the pot of clay. I'm the empty vessel. You can fill me. You can use me. I want you, your purposes to be fulfilled. I want what you have in mind to take place. I want people to be touched. And oh, by the way, it wouldn't hurt my feeling if you bless me in the process. <laughs> and folks, that's to one degree or another what what is played out in the story with Moses. And also is a story that plays out with us. So perhaps you need to start with the question of, okay, does God talk to me? Does God have a plan for me? Is he able to show me what that plan looks like? Is he able to say, okay, take this step and then take that step? Is he able to sustain me when things blow up in my face, which they will at some point or another? And I'm, am I willing to trust God for the fullness, the fullness of what he has for me? Not just uh, cup number one, but cup number two, cup number three, cup number four, etc. Ask the Lord to speak to you as we take time to worship him. in these remaining few minutes of the service. Father God, we thank you for your amazing chesed, your covenant-committed, loyal love for us, your plans and purposes. We thank you, Lord, that you know us, you put up with us, you're patient with us, Lord God, I pray for each one of us here today that you would cause us to hear clearly and unequivocally your plans and purposes for us and that you would bless us with a measure of faith that is needed to pursue your call and your destiny in our life. We pray for the patient faith, Lord God, to walk in the paths that you have prepared for us, we pray that you would receive the honor and the glory, the name of Yeshua. Amen.